Hey everyone, and welcome to the Phineas Club. This is episode 79 for December 2016. What a year! Hello everyone and welcome back to the Phileas Club. My name is Patrick Beja and in this show we get people from different countries uh, of the world, different places, different cultures and uh, we talk about the stuff that has been happening, important stuff that has been happening in our uh, local news and uh, hopefully we give you different perspectives about all of that and uh, open your mind or at least that's what we try to do in a good way. Um, my name is Patrick Beja, as I said, and uh, for his great return, uh, we have to welcome Turkey because he was away last uh, month and you, we missed you. How have you been doing? I've been doing great. Thank you so much. just celebrated my 40th birthday. So now I'm joining your club of the 40s. <laughs> that, I, I, my understanding is that you, you weren't too happy about, I guess, most people uh aren't happy about turning 40 but uh you you celebrated in hey. london right yeah we went to london celebrated it i there was no way in hell i was gonna celebrate it here why not it's a depressing city for god's sake <laughs> well i don't know i've never been there for those who don't know turkey is from saudi arabia so <laughs> it's it sounds like you know it's it might be the desert but it's sunny right no okay well but yeah no, that's 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 the only part they miss in london okay. the sun fair enough uh and also to join us for this episode we have eric olander who is uh, still in vietnam right still in vietnam ho chi minh city to be exact Excellent. Um, so, you know what? We don't have a lot of time. It's uh, Christmas Eve Eve, and uh, it's the weekend for Turkey, even though it's not for us. Uh, so, we're just, we're, I think we're going to jump into it. Uh, however, before we do that, I really do want, want to thank once again uh, every listener for the fantastic response we've gotten to the previous episode, as I think uh, has been made very clear by my uh, anguish recording the show. It was a difficult one for me. And um, if you haven't listened to it, it was all about, you know, um, President Trump and uh, trying to understand the people who did vote for uh, for Trump. And it it was as i said a really difficult show for me to do because i'm i'm very much uh, far away from um this kind of thinking but we tried to do a good job and i think the uh audience reacted uh, pretty positively both you know in both camps i i hate the fact that it is such distinct camps uh but in both camps you know people who were for or well not even for it's not even about that but people who understood people who didn't um both said the show was uh very useful to them and and that support by the way showed in the patreon which uh, a lot of uh, you guys decided to support so this is the kind of thing that makes me super happy not just because it's money even though you know that does count uh, but also because it's it's uh, actual action that shows you appreciate the show and we've been doing it for a long time and uh, the fact that you you uh, guys and girls decide to show your support in that way means a lot so thank you very much and now we're gonna get back to the actual show with so uh, 
I was thinking I was going to start, but you know what? Maybe I should give Turkey an opportunity to start just because it's a special occasion with the end of the year, last year of the year. Um, Saudi Arabia, what's been happening there? And I wonder if we want to ask you about about Trump. I'm hesitant because you, you <laughs> didn't have a chance last. You, you could hear the hesitation in my in my voice. You're going to ruin all of the uh, you know reasonableness that we uh, we worked towards in the last episode. But uh, what was the reaction to the election of Trump in Saudi Arabia, and then maybe what's been happening on the in the month? Well, uh, let's see. There was a mixed reaction. Basically, uh, there are a minority that celebrated his win. There's a majority that was really surprised and annoyed and pissed at his win. So why, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, why uh, was the minority that celebrated his win? What was the rationale behind it? Um, uh, let's see. There are different reasons. Uh, one is a lot of them did see him as a Republican. Uh, the Saudis do have a link with Republicans and conservatives in a way, uh, ide ideology. Uh, the other thing is basically they just uh, saw change and they thought that Obama was a complete disaster. And there's those who didn't like Hillary, period, and they thought, well, and And they just thought that he was an honest talker. It's just exactly what's happening in the U.S. There were people here who had the same reaction as the people in the U.S. Mm. It's it's really uh, funny how how closely this seems to mirror it. Uh, the 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 reasons you're giving are basically the reasons that uh, that the the American people seems to, seem to have for uh, for voting for for Trump. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly the same. It's basically the, uh, the same reasons. It's uh, uh, people do forget or ignore stuff, he says, as the some, many voters in the U.S. have ignored some of the, what he said that either is racist or uh, anti-Islamic or whatever. So they just look at the bottom line they think and 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 the mentality that a lot of people still believe that politicians just say stuff they never really mm. mean them in reality and that still exists with a lot of people's thoughts unfortunately as we can see it's really scary with the, with his with his uh, hiring of his administration it doesn't look like he was joking at all in anything he said mm. um, I so think, I, but, but uh, patrick just very quickly on the saudi arabia side I think there's something very different, though, that was also a play with the Saudis. And Turkey, tell me if I'm wrong here. But, but yeah. you know, Obama really shifted American policy away from focusing on Saudi Arabia the way that the Bush family, had, you know, had a very long, deep, you know, well-established relationship with Saudi Arabia. It was a special partner. There was all, you know, we were supplying weapons to them and we were buying enormous amounts of oil from the Saudis. But then, you know, Obama really pushed the Iran deal very aggressively. Saudi Arabia felt like they were abandoned by the Americans. You know, this was also at the side, the time when American oil production, you know, shot up to the point where, you know, our imports of Saudi oil went down considerably. And so yeah. I think there was the sense that the relationship was broken between the Saudis and the Americans under Obama. So I can see why there wasn't a lot of love lost when the Democrats mm. lost. Well, the, basically that is kind of true. However, Hillary would have uh, bringing that relationship back. She she is close to the Saudis in a way. Uh, <clears throat> but what really is that this reaction is mostly that people saw Obama as a weak link on the international stage. 
his biggest uh, fall was when he threatened to send in uh, fighters into Syria the, to bomb uh, the Syrian uh, <clears throat> army after the chemical attack incident. And he backed out at the last moment. That was a huge uh, signal to Saudis that this is a weak president that he's not even willing to stand up to Russia. Interesting. Russia has been, of course, in the news very much uh, recently, and I'm not <coughs> only talking about hacking issues, but uh, with, with Syria specifically yeah. and uh, the recent fall of uh, Aleppo. And this has been discussed very much in the in the French election as well. But uh, I'll, I'll get to that and we'll get to, I think, more discussions of how the balance of power is shifting in the world, especially with China, when you're going to talk about your topic, Eric. Um, but yeah, first, anything else, anything specific that happened in Saudi Arabia, something interesting to, uh, to note? Oh, well, uh, the biggest news right now, the Saudi government yesterday just announced the budget for 2017. Uh, we just announced uh, for 2017, a deficit of 198 billion reals. Um, that's about uh, 120, 30 billion dollars of a deficit. Uh, <clears throat> they've issued a lot of uh, initiatives they're planning to do in Saudi to cut this deficit, and uh, most of it is going to affect the people of Saudi Arabia. They're going to uh, increase the prices for gas, uh, electricity, water. Uh, they're they're not even going to increase them. They're more going to uh, uh, make them uh, to the international standards. Jeez, that that's yes. a huge increase, right? <clears throat> huge, huge increase. The, there at was, least yeah. at least a hundred percent increase. That's and yeah. and that comes a couple of months after the um, salary cuts for government workers, which represent yes. a huge amount of the uh, of the population in Saudi Arabia. So this is. Yeah. It, just to my image of the country is you have so much oil, you don't care about anything, everyone's coasting on the price of oil. Uh, and it seems like this is almost, you know, kind of coming out of nowhere. You're all of a sudden having to become, this is going to sound condescending. I seriously, I, it doesn't, it's, I don't mean it that way, but you have to become a real country where budgeting is an issue and you don't have infinite amounts of money flowing in because you have so much uh, oil. Uh, yeah, that's kind of true. It's uh, it's really affecting a lot of people. It's going to affect uh, drastically. Uh, they have a, a secondary plan that they're also going to initiate uh, where they're going to open a specific program so if you earn a specific amount of money or less, then you can apply for this program and you'll get a subsidy from the government to help you with your expenses because of these increases. Uh, their number one aim here is they're targeting expats. So expats don't get anything in return. So they get everything, all the prices go up on them and they don't get anything back from the government. No subsidies for the expats. And uh, basically upper middle class, uh, rich people are not going to get any subsidies. So they're going to have to spend their money on the prices currently. Uh, That's socialism. I, what is happening to Saudi Arabia? I mean, th I, that's I'm half joking, but how is... Uh, 
what happened in the last year that this all of a sudden? I, first of all, I, I think it's gonna. It seems like it's gonna change the dynamic of power in the region. But also, what happened that all of a sudden? Uh, I'm renewing my question on oil. Is there? I mean, are the prices so low that it's not sustainable, or is the country trying to prepare for the eventual, uh, you know, uh, uh, end of the oil fiesta? It's a combination of both. So it's a way for the government to, the prices of oil are still low. Uh, We've been spending a lot. Uh, They are also trying to build up an economy that doesn't rely completely on oil. So those are the steps. Uh, They did promise that no taxes will be issued until at least 2020. So for the next three years, there's no taxes. However, we are getting a VAT tax starting in 2019, 18, 2018. So we are getting some kind of tax. So no uh, income tax, but VAT. Yeah, no income tax, at least until 2020. That's the promise. That's, I mean, that's like three, four <clears throat> years of <clears throat> upheaval of the, the political and so, you know, administration system in the country. That can't go easily or are people thinking yeah we actually need it so it's not um too well, much of people, a problem no people are divided on this i think most people are really really pissed at the moment it's uh, it's kind of it's your uh, the the steps the government is taking at the end of the day is going to increase everything it's going to increase food. It's going to increase uh, you mean the, the price cost of living. The prices, yeah, the prices for food for the cost of living is going to increase dramatically, even though the the salaries just went down for uh, government employees. Uh, the salaries are not up to st- uh, standard in the private sector for the majority of people to cover these costs. Because come on, you have VAT. You have an increase in gas, you have an increase in electricity, and all of that, that would mean an increase in the prices of everything else, because that's the reaction you get. Of course. The cost, uh, expats, uh, now companies, uh, private sector relies very heavily on expats in Saudi. Uh, uh, And now the government is implementing uh, a fee on every employee, every expat in the company, a monthly fee that they have to pay for the government, for the company has to pay the government. That means their cost of employment has just increased also. So I, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to the same question, but what happened, you know, in the past year or so that all of a sudden all of these are being implemented at the same time? Did someone new get into power? Did someone wake up and think, yeah, holy you, crap? Did, and... Did, 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 did you forget we got a new king about a year and a half ago? Oh, right. Okay. So that's the explanation. <laughs> yeah. We have okay. a new king and uh, his son, who is the deputy crown prince, is the one in charge of all of these uh, movements. And uh, with the support of uh, McKenzie and friends. Mm. Okay. The consulting firm. So it's a lot of changes. It's, 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 things are really, really moving in a way that nobody's really sure how it's going to ha- end up being. Uh, reactions are really divided. Uh, I think the government is making, in a way, in some way, these are good moves. But they're also very dangerous moves. Uh, I personally am 
the concept of the, what's going on, I have no problem with the concept as a concept of what's happening. Uh, I do agree we need to do steps. We do need to move away from oil and so on. My biggest problem is that these changes are happening from a, a government that we don't even have a voice in. Right. Well, that's the way it I, works in, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but, I, I, I have a huge problem with that. If you're going to take all these subsidies away, if you're going to start uh, charging us and doing things like this, then at least give us a voice. That's our right for us to have that voice, to have an opinion on all of these. You don't just come and impose all of these changes and affect our way of life like this well yeah so i agree with you on principle that you know i, I wouldn't <laughs> say that uh, democracy is not the way to go but i do also worry that if you did uh have a voice then none of these would happen or a weaker version of them would happen i can't believe i'm arguing for autocracies <laughs> here but um, uh, no 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 when you have a voice then you really know what's going on you have the people who can see these things everything would be open and people would understand the needs because you have a deficit that you have to take care you, of it's yeah not exactly you'd, you'd the think same. that's the way it would work you'd think so wouldn't you But, um, yeah, but, okay, all right. Anyway, um, okay, I, I, we don't have a huge amount of time, so uh, I am going to move on. But uh, that is, I'm, I'm really interested in finding out how the, these things continue to evolve. Because, as we all know, Saudi Arabia is a very uh, a special friend. We have uh, all of us in the Middle East, for better or worse, and the way things are changing now. Uh, I think at that point, you know, if you were... Um, ooh, there are some people screaming in the background. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no problem. Um, at that point, you know, when you get the subsidies from oil and, you know, the deal the country had made a long time ago, then you don't really worry about what's happening, uh, about having a voice. But as you're saying, Turkey, maybe more and more people are going to start asking for a voice um, going forward. So it will be Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to happen. They need to make steps that, uh, to react to the population because there, we are heading to a different path right now. And it's really going to be... Uh, it could be a good one. It could be a dangerous one. We just have to wait and see and see how people react and how the government re reacts to that. Um, all right, let's move on to France and then we'll switch to Vietnam and, and China even. Um, so France has been really interesting this past month because, as you know, we're preparing for the election next year. And um, the we've had the primaries for the Republicans, which are the... Uh, interestingly enough, it's the name of the right-wing party. Well, right-wing, the conservatives, I suppose. Um, they recently changed it. And we have the left, which has their uh, primaries coming soon as well. And uh, I'm guessing, Eric, you followed this as well since you were living in France for so long before sure. moving to Vietnam. And the the... the Right. Uh, the conservative party's primaries was super interesting because it was yet another upset that nobody saw coming after, you know, months and months and months of certainty between the two primary, the two main candidates. Uh, it was Sarkozy, the former president, who's kind of bombastic and, and 
disliked by some of the uh, voters because of his uh, uh, character. Who, he's he's very forceful. And uh, Juppé, who is a former um, uh, Uh, official who has been convicted for not a you know not a huge crime but there was some fake jobs happening and you know basically uh money being distributed somewhere it shouldn't have been and he was convicted he had to go he went to canada to teach for a few years when he was not uh, able to uh, run in government uh, for government positions and those two were the main uh two um the main two candidates but then in the last few days before the actual primary took place maybe in the last three or four days a third option the a third uh, candidate rose and we started seeing in polls a very uh, uh, strong push from François Fillon who is the third one um, and who ended up taking it actually he he won uh, the the first round uh, by you know he was way above the other two and everyone else there was about eight candidates uh, and the second round he won handily and that he no one spoke about him as a serious candidate until maybe three days or four days before the first round so it's it's very reminiscent of uh the certainty of pollsters and uh trends and opinions in in the country where it ended up being all of that certainty ended up being completely inaccurate um the And, and a lot of people are comparing all of these together. The, the one thing that is important to note, though, is that um, the, the, the reason, it seems, why he got the better of the other two was that he has no uh, uh, judiciary issues. He's basically a, a conservative, a, a quote-unquote real conservative. Um, he doesn't have the judicial issues of Juppé or of Sarkozy, even though Sarkozy hasn't been uh, convicted at this point. Um, and people wanted someone who was clean. And clean in a sense that, uh, you know, he's a serious person. And by the way, listening to the debates, I understand it's the primary, so people are maybe more polite with one another. But after following, that was this was early uh, in the month, um, and after following the American uh, presidential debates for a few months, listening to these debates in France were such a breath of fresh air. You know, it was adults discussing boring. serious issues. Did you mean boring? No, it was, well, if you don't <laughs> like elections. But I mean, it was, it was, I had almost forgotten that political debate can happen like this. You know, it's just serious issues being discussed by people who understand them and who make actual not fun. arguments. Um, But it's not fun. They're, well, they're fun for me. <laughs> uh, they're passionate. They're, they're uh, uh, you know, exciting, I think. But um. so, so, so in other words, some people with brains and who are sane and who know what they're talking about are actually discussing real issues. Basically, yeah. And it's, you know, it's not, I, I'm sure all of the candidates are actually intelligent people um, in, in, in the U.S. as well. But the problem is the, 
debate, the nature of the debate is twisted so much on specific issues with uh, posturing and rhetoric that you can't have a serious conversation. And thankfully, I was a little bit worried, but thankfully, it seems that this hasn't reached us, or at least not yet, or I don't know. But these debates were, you know, you might disagree with what they were saying, but they were having serious arguments, explaining why they would uh, go use these policies rather than these others, even though some of them might be a little bit, you know, controversial or, but they were saying, you know, this is why we want to do this and that. And, and there's, a, there was discussions happening. It was so refreshing. I, I felt like my, it was like fuel for my, for my sanity in my brain. Um, and then we have the left, which is, you know, president in a, completely unprecedented move the the sitting president is not going to uh, run for a second term which is so silly uh you know silly in the sense that we couldn't imagine it happening but he's so unpopular that he said he didn't you know he decided against going because he knew he was going to lose it was, was going to be ridiculous and it was going to hurt his political family even more but now we have like eight uh, we have another primary coming up, and the primaries are relatively new in our country. They're maybe the last couple of cycles. Um, and there are, uh, you know, two or three serious candidates. Uh, and there is on the left of that people saying that the current left is basically social democracy that they're pushing, and they're not actual uh, left, uh, you know, socialist policies, or they're, they're too much to the right, is the complaint. So we have a very strong extreme left and a very strong extreme right, and a, a weak left in the middle of it, a, a relatively strong right. But the big question is, will the election see, uh, uh, you know, how strong will the push of the far right be in this election? And a lot of people are wondering about the Front National. Uh, and of course, asking if this is going to be Act 3 of the Brexit, Trump, and, you know, the third one being Marine Le Pen, which is the um, leader of the Front National. And they are, you know, they're far right, uh, but it's more... A lot of people like to label them as, you know, uh, uh, super extreme and like basically the Nazis of, of the civilized world, quote unquote, if that even means something. But what the reality is, they're really nationalists in the same way that uh, the Brexit camp uh, is and the uh, Trump camp is without the silliness uh, and the, the clownness of of the Trump um, uh, attitude, you know, uh, she, Marine Le Pen and the party is a lot more uh, uh, not relatable, but dependable, I guess, because you know what they think, you know what they say. They they usually stand their ground, but in a nationalistic uh, uh, attitude. It's a nationalist party. Um, so I personally don't believe that we are in real danger of seeing the Front National be elected. And I know that a lot of people are going to say, oh, but that's what you thought about Brexit and that's what you thought about uh, Trump. And the easy thing would be say, well, then we don't know anything. But I re I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's very possible she's going to be on the, on the uh, th second round. I really don't think she's going to be on the, uh, elected if, if that happens, because it's really hard to understate or to overstate, sorry, how much France, 
dislikes the Front National. It represents a large part of the of the voters, but a lot of people, uh, you know, people would rally and band behind the the other candidate, whoever he is. And it's very likely that he would be, I mean, it's not very, but it's likely that he would be the conservative candidate anyway. So I don't see how Marine Le Pen would win against him. And even if it was a, a left-wing candidate, I think there would be enough support behind him to uh, make that an impossibility for the, the Front National. So I really don't see it happening. I might be I wrong, think you are far too optimistic because I think a lot of the traits... I mean, you said it yourself at the beginning of your, of your discussion. France is polarized uh, between the extreme left and the extreme right. I think you are speaking much like people in the United States from New York, Los Angeles, and like the Democrats spoke from the point of view of Paris. But when you look at a country that has 25 to 30 percent youth unemployment, where you look at how globalization has just run over much of the French working class, when you look at the stubborn unemployment rates and the inability for French, you know, the legal system, the political system to reform and to evolve, the levels of frustration outside of Paris are incredible. Don't underestimate the hostility to Islam. Every single terrorist attack that happens now in Europe just makes her stronger. So what we saw in Germany, it reinforces what she's saying. And I think that all of the pieces are in place for her to capitalize on what Trump and what Brexit did. And I think that this, this idealized notion that Parisians have, that this could never happen, much like when she made it to the, to the second round, she made it to the second round, if I'm correct, or she made it past it, the first it was, round. It was her dad. Time. It was her dad who made it in 2002. Was, that's right. Yeah. And that terrified people, but that was a different world. I agree. That was, that was a different world. Um, I think if you took a vote today for France to leave the European Union, it would win handily. And I think that hostility to Brussels also has to be factored in. Um, you know, the precedent has been set with Britain now, so it makes it easier for her to make that argument. Um, that nationalist argument is very much, you know, pushing a lot of, of countries. Um, so I, I don't have anywhere near the confidence that you have that, that she won't win. In fact, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would say she's going to win because there's every piece is in place right there for her to win. I, I understand. And that's, you know, almost after seeing the Brexit and, and Trump's election, that's the logical argument. And certainly the pieces are in place. But I mean, it's very possible I'm, I'm in my Parisian bubble. Absolutely. But I really think that The France is different, and maybe I'm going to be proven wrong. I, I'm I'm oh, well, thinking it might she might be at the second on the second round. She might lose by you know five percent, but I don't think she's going to get it. But look at what they've done in the regional elections. They've done very well in the regional elections. Yeah. So again, every indicator right now is pointing to a strong performance from the Front National. Yeah. So I'm not sure. It's just a hope right now that Parisians are saying this can't happen. But what I get frustrated about looking at French society is how intransigent the elites are, so deeply entrenched in the system, and in this, in this system that will simply not budge. And on the outside of Paris, you've got these masses of immigrants, you've got urban, urban middle classes that are struggling to keep up, you've got a lack of labor reform that makes it impossible for young people to get into the system. And, and, and people are understandably frustrated with the elites who just keep getting richer and richer and richer. You know, the prices for property in Paris are out of control. Well, and that's so, the case in every, know, in every city. Yeah. 
It absolutely is. And that's what's fueled so much of the tension. We're going to talk a little bit about Korea. Same thing in Korea. We saw it in Hong Kong. Same thing in Hong Kong. The, you know, the, the upset in Taiwan of the presidency there, of the, of, the, of the ruling party. Same thing there. So if it's happening in other parts of the world, there's no reason to think that France can be immune. Well... I think we're better than everyone else because I'm French and I still have Well, you're hope, French, but, of course, uh, yeah, and that's exactly. what you, <laughs> but, you uh, represent you know the what? elites very well, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know what's the problem with all of this is people do live in bubbles, especially in big cities, and they think things are not going to happen, and then they start to relax, and they don't. some of them don't even go and vote. Some of them don't even be active. And that's how those so, people move because the is, people feel so relaxed and so sure of things that they don't worry so much. They don't really take any action about it. And that's what happened in the U.S. How many people voted in the U.S.? So it, that um, is, you know, like, like 55% of the population voted for. But our that's president. normal, though, for the U.S., though. That's exactly. And that's the no, difference. But, no, but this is the difference. This election was different. This was huge. There was Trump and there was Hillary. This was a huge election that had a huge balance of power, completely different views. People did not go out and vote because people either didn't care, didn't worry, or just lost hope. That, so this, this should is have the difference the highest in, uh, turn, turn for elections. And this is this would happen in Saudi. Keep in mind, people do not understand Saudi Arabia. I meet a lot of people in Saudi Arabia, some Saudis and a lot of expats. They think that Saudis... The majority of Saudis are very open and they would want free elections. They would want uh, a lot of freedoms and rights and so on. The fact of the matter is, even though I am calling that we need a voice, that we need to elect people, I know for a fact in Saudi Arabia, if that ever happens, that right-wing Islamists are going to take control of this country. Well. Wow. Yeah, that is that is a concern for sure, and that's what happened in in different countries in the Middle East. But going back to France, the reason it's different is that people do vote, especially for presidential elections. We never have on the second uh, round of an election, almost never uh, less than eighty percent of voters, right? People going out to actually vote. And if the Front National was on the second round, they it would be 80% again. I think the difference with France and many other countries is that we do take politics relatively seriously, I would say very seriously, and compared to other countries, 80% is standard for the presidential elections. So that... Uh, that's a part of the reason why I don't think it would it would happen. But we'll see, you know, maybe... Maybe I'll be wrong, and and I also don't think it would be the end of the world. Uh, when I look at, you know, we'll see. But um, I I don't think I don't think they'll they'll pass. They shall not pass, in my opinion. Um, but you know what, Eric, you were talking. I do want to talk about our thoughts on 2016 as a whole. You know, as a year uh, before the end of the show. So let's move on to Asia and what's been happening in your part of the world. And, you know, I talk about France. Turkey talks about uh, Saudi Arabia. You're basically uh, the, the guy on the news desk. Uh, well, literally, because you work for a TV station, but in Asia. So what's been happening in Asia? You're the Asian. Well, clearly, reporter. it's the role of the United States, uh, you know, in this region that is really up for question. So much like, you know, in terms whether you know Turkey was saying how there are questions about kind of you know the U.S. commitment to this to to, to the world, uh, that's the question mark on everybody's mind here. You know, and the tweets coming out of Trump Tower, 
uh, add to an unprecedented level of confusion. Oh, you you're you're breaking up. That these were you're breaking ones. up a little bit, Eric. Can you can you repeat oh, what you said? Uh, so you know, it's hard for people to imagine that for a country like Vietnam, that you know, with the United States, its relationship has blossomed in the past four or five years. Uh, you know, the United States is now the largest trading partner of Vietnam. You know, clearly the United States is you know is now a military partner. If you can believe it, American warships are now docking in Cameron Bay which would have been unthinkable, you know, at the beginning of my life, you know, in the 1970s when these two countries were at war. And now the key question is, what will happen? And, you know, and, and, and Trump is such an unknown figure, uh, you know, here in this part of the world, he's unknown everywhere, that, you know, this puts Vietnam in an extremely difficult situation because of China and China's aggressive moves in the South China Sea, in the East Vietnam Sea, as they say here, uh, you know, the change of allegiance from for the Philippines, who have shifted away from uh, the United States and are now Duterte, the president there, is moving towards China as well. That changes the equation. Uh, you know, so it's these are very, very interesting times for the Vietnamese who counted a lot on TPP. TPP was a very, very big thing for the Vietnamese to have, you know, free trade access into the American market. Uh, that's obviously dead. They baked that into the price. What was so interesting was after the election, the stock market here went down a little bit, but it didn't go down a lot because you know investors had priced in that TPP was more or less dead already. But what it does is it pulls Vietnam now much closer into China's orbit. China now is aggressively pushing what it's calling RCEP, RCEP, um, which is the Economic Partnership Program that's kind of a TPP light. And so we, you really get this sense that there's an historical change here in Asia of the balance of power away from the United States and tilting more and more towards China. And that makes it very, very difficult for the Vietnamese, who are longtime adversaries of the Chinese. But at the end of the day, people are pragmatic and practical, and they have to go with who they think is going to benefit them the most. And I think there's real questions now where the United States uh, is going to be the Pacific power that it was in the 20th century, that it will be in the 21st century. Well, I think that's what we were kind of discussing when we were talking about the consequences of Trump's election or maybe the, the potential consequences if it was a couple of months ago. Um, and what we posited was basically Trump being uh, nationalistic is going to uh, recede America's influence from the world. And that is what is, you know, what was leading people to think that uh, uh Uh, he was the favorite of uh, Putin and why Russia would have a vested interest in, have, in seeing him in the White House rather than uh, Clinton uh, because less American influence means more uh, space, more room for uh, other superpowers like Russia and China to expand their own influence. So what you're saying, right, it, we're seeing it be, happen be, already? But be careful about putting it under... Uh, under Trump. Trump is really, you know, part of a, a much longer process. This is something that's been underway for 20 years. The Chinese have made the single largest grab of territory since the Soviet Union invaded Eastern Europe. I mean, really, it's that big. And people, you know, particularly in Europe and the U.S., they don't understand what's happened here in the South China Sea. Five trillion dollars of trade passes through the South China Sea every year. This is one of the most important sea lanes in the, in the world. Uh, it, you know, it, it connects this, the world's second and third largest economies to the United States and to the rest of the world. And what the Chinese have done by militarizing and by effectively just occupying it and claiming it uh, is remarkable. And they didn't have to fire a shot. So from a military standpoint, it was pure genius what 
they were able to do. But the question is, is they took a gamble, and I think it's the right gamble. Will the United States get into a shooting war over some rocks in the South China Sea? And their assumption is no. And Obama did not confront, and I think Obama was probably right, uh, because if he committed American naval assets into the South China Sea to confront the Chinese, it would have ended up in a shooting war. Um, is that where the United States wants to be right now? And it's a very difficult situation. So for a lot of people, they say, oh, you shouldn't let the Chinese kind of do this. Obama's got to be tougher and stronger. You know, but what's that plan B? What does that mean, that next step? Are you going to get into a war with the world's second largest navy? Probably not. Uh, so, so these are the difficult questions. And this is happening far. Trump is kind of accelerating the process. But it's certainly to put it all on Trump's doorstep is really not an accurate look at history. But you don't th no, I'm not saying to history, but you don't think uh, China and Russia would favor having someone who is putting, you know, his focus on America rather than international affairs in the White House? They, they wouldn't rather no. have Trump than Clinton? You don't think this so? Is, this is a nightmare for, for China, having Trump. The Chinese like predictability. They like stability. They want somebody they can work with. Uh, you know, and what Trump did in the past few weeks by... You know, and I think this was a calculated mistake, but at the same time, it's done. But by playing the Taiwan card so early on, he went right to he went right to the third rail of Chinese politics. There is no stepping back now from from the Taiwan convent, you know, and, and kind of questioning the one China policy. There is no issue that is more sensitive and more important for the Chinese than Taiwan. So how did, you know, how did the, the, the media and, you know, the, the politics politicians react to that call that he, he accepted? Well, you know, the first, the initially the Chinese media and the Chinese foreign ministry was very reserved about it uh, on the first comments. And there was the assumption that, China, you know, that Trump is a neophyte in politics, so he may not have understood what he was doing. And, and when it started to reveal itself that this was actually calculated by kind of Republican hardliners, pro-Taiwan Republican hardliners, people like Bob Dole and Peter Navarro, the new trade uh, counselor for the president-elect, uh, Um, the Chinese amped up the, the rhetoric. And what you're seeing out of the newspapers, the China Daily, the People's Daily, and the Global Times, which are their, the kind of the mouthpieces of Chinese foreign policy in many respects on these kinds of topics, uh, now is a, you know what, you're playing with fire. And I don't think Americans truly understand how important Taiwan is. You know, I equate Taiwan to China. It's their Jerusalem. And you'll ask right. every single Chinese person, Would you go to war to prevent Taiwan from breaking away from the United States? And every person from the peasant to the billionaire would say we burn down the house to save Taiwan. It is not a rational argument because a lot of Westerners will say, well, China, you've done so much. You, you're now the second largest economy. Why would you risk it for this little island of 20 million people? Because the legitimacy of the Communist Party depends on keeping the borders solid. If you look back through Chinese history, the dynasties have expanded and contracted. And every time the dynasties contracted in their territory, the dynasties fell. So Taiwan is really, you know, this periphery, you know, part of the, the, the very unstable periphery that China has. Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, Hong Kong. These are all places that are pushing and pulling away from the center. And China has to hold them together. And if the center doesn't hold, then everything falls apart. So they commit everything to Taiwan. And so when China, when, when Trump played this so early, that was what I think surprised a lot of China watchers, because this is what you do later on down the road. 
And he's got a lot of other issues that he has to gauge with the Chinese. But right now, it's like putting a red flag in front of a Spanish bull. And the Chinese now are only thinking Taiwan. So what do you, why do you think he did it? Because as you said, you know, for us, even here in France, it was reported as, well, you know, he sort of, he, it was a blunder and he's sort of saying, uh, as he always does. By the way, as Turkey said, it looks to us as if he's, he hasn't changed much between candidate Trump and President Trump, much to the dismay of, of many of us. But so it was like, well, he accepted the call and then he sent out a tweet saying, oh, we sell them weapons, but we can't take a call. Sort of showing a side of, I don't understand international politics, but you think it no, was very calculated. No, that was not it at all. I mean, this was orchestrated for three or four months. It took three or four months to plan this call. It was done by Bob Dole, the former senator from Kansas and the presidential candidate. Uh, his consulting firm made the arrangements. It was orchestrated in part with the Heritage Foundation as well, a conservative think tank, which has been very pro-Taiwan. The Republican Party in the United States for much of the Cold War was very much aligned with Taiwan as a bulwark, as an anti-communist kind of you know, face against communist China. Uh, so there's still very deep relationships between the Republican Party and Taiwan. And the Taiwanese spend a huge amount of money lobbying in Washington. So to call this a kind of a blunder and an uncalculated error on the part of Trump uh, is misreading the situation. Yeah. That, he that was personally me, may not fully not... understand it, but right. the people around him absolutely understood what they were doing. And what they're trying to do right now is they're trying to put the Chinese on the defensive. What they don't understand, and this is something that is very, very critical, is that they think that the China of today is the China of 20 years ago. They are not really up to date in their understanding of what it is to pick a fight with the second largest economy in the world, the second largest navy in the world. And I think then when China picked up that underwater unmanned drone in the South China Sea from the Americans this recently, that was a message to say, you're playing with fire. You're playing in a very dangerous turf. You don't necessarily understand what the consequences will be. I spoke with a Chinese foreign policy analyst a couple of weeks ago, and this is how the Chinese now are approaching their countermeasures to the Americans. What they're going to be doing is that they're drawing up now a list of targeted sanctions that are going to hit the most vulnerable Americans. Those communities, they have a filter that they're setting up. Those communities that are poor, those communities that depend on trade with China, those communities that they can make suffer as much as they possibly can. Because what they want to do is they want to put pressure on you, on the Republican senators and Republican congressmen, to back off. So you're talking about chicken parts from North Georgia. You're talking about soybean from Iowa and Oklahoma. You're talking about car parts that go into the factories in the South. So they're, the they're targeting local, China, very local. Hyper, hyper local. Mm. This, is, this is a well-worn Chinese strategy. For example, here in Vietnam, There was a dispute in the National Assembly and some anti-China legislators in the Vietnamese National Assembly started to really rail. What the Chinese did was they picked the produce that came out of those National Assembly legislators' districts. And in this case, it was jackfruit. And all of a sudden, they say, you know what? No more jackfruit from, these, from Vietnam coming into the... <laughs> and all of a sudden, within one week, the jackfruit starts piling up, the farmers getting a really angry... And it was amazing how just that jujitsu type of trade strategy was so effective in turning them around. And they're probably going to be doing the same thing with the United States. And so Trump, if he thinks that he's going to be able to, uh, to put pressure on the Chinese without suffering real and immediate consequences, I think he's extraordinarily naive. And I have a feeling the Republicans don't understand that. 
So a, a, a slightly more, um, you know, wider look at all of this. How did um, Vietnam, the country where you live, and and China, which is your your specialty, and maybe even Africa? I don't know. But how did they react to um, Trump's so election? Initially, so they don't they don't really follow American politics that closely. It's not in the news the same way as it is in in Europe. It pops up from time to time. It's there. So they thought it was kind of a joke in the beginning, and everybody was laughing, and they thought it was funny that a TV entertainer kind of won. And but here there was also this idea that. You know, people are very cynical about politics in both China and Vietnam. They, they, you know, these are not representative democracies. They have no stake. The average person does not have a stake in, in, in politics. They look at their leaders in very, very kind of, you know, jaundiced ways. So this idea that a billionaire who's had a lot of women, who is on TV, who's very brash, who's really anti-political, really appeals to them here. And it's very much a caricature in China as well where people idolize the billionaires. They idolize mm. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, because they think they're different. They think they're outside of the political system, which they identify as being so corrupt. So I was just taking a taxi the other day here in Ho Chi Minh City, and the guy, the driver was like, Trump, yeah, Trump's great. <laughs> and, but again, for him, he's looking at the, the visuals, the optics of Trump, and they re that really kind of appeals to them. Success, you know, money, you know, flashing it around. He's had a whole bunch of wives. He's had girlfriends. You know, these are kind of traits that really resonate as kinds of signs of success here. And so I think you in know, that it's, sense, it's they funny, really like again, it. how how similar this seems to be to at least some of what we understand of the the way it's worked in the U.S. as well. I think some of that has played there. People also. really, you know, well, people are very cynical about politics in the U.S. too. So in that sense, you yeah. know, there's a And people are cynical about politics in many countries, you know, right, and I'll right. argue even that they're cynical in France. And the cynicism here is born from the fact that, you know, this is a developing country where, you know, the streets flood, the tr trash isn't always picked up. You know, police are, you know, not there to protect, but the police are there to kind of, you know, profit. And so public services here don't really work. So people, when they in interact with the state and they interact with the public system, it's not usually for the better. So that kind of really shades their way of looking at politics. So you have a guy who's this kind of, you know, he's, he's you know, he comes from the outside on the wild on the horse and he's going to say, I'm going to change it all. That really resonates because people want that kind of change in their own countries. And, and again, this is where I see that the role of the United States, the world needs to have this idealized vision of the United States because in so many parts of the world, it doesn't work. Now, I don't believe that the United States has lived up to those ideals for a very, very long time. But I see the hope that so many people here have in going to study in the United States, to migrate to the United States, a place where you can actually be free, supposedly, a place where you can kind of achieve your dreams. You know, that dream and that, that ideal is so powerful. And few places in the world have that. And I think there's a, they haven't accepted what I already have, is that that dream doesn't exist anymore. You know, we don't have anywhere near the social mobility that you have in Europe. You know, we have a class-based society. We have a caste-based society. We have huge, serious human rights problems in the United States, you know, whether it's towards minorities or prison overcrowding or health care denial or whatnot. The list goes on and on. But people here, they don't understand that. So they look at this really idealized vision of the United States. But so initially, they, it, was, it was kind of a joke, but now people are realizing that, what, it's it's more than they thought it was going to be or 
Uh, people, well, people, for the most part, people now have lost interest. You look on the front page of the, okay. the newspapers every day and there's no American politics. So, you know, uh, you know, we tend to think that, that, you know, that American politics is the center of the universe. But at the end of the day, it's it's just one among many. Yeah, Everything here focuses on China. Everything here is about China. You know, so what what interested now is what will happen in the South China Sea? Will the United States from Breaking the Chinese who are trying to sorry. upset it. Oh, it sounds perfect to me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's um, okay. Everything is centered on China in this part of the world right now and how they're going Makes to sense. react to what's going on. Mm. All right. Well, um, so that was... That was interesting for sure, and and the look at uh, the importance of Taiwan is is I think a little bit un uh, you know misunderstood in the West. We I think we looked at it a little bit uh, casually or lightly, at least in France. We we focused on the Trump side of it a lot more than uh, the Chinese side of it, which is likely the the wrong way of looking at it. That's right. That's um, right. All right. You know what? I I would like to uh, conclude the episode with, you know, a look at the year, um, possibly from the the perspective of our local uh, environments. But uh, our thoughts on 2016 as a whole, of course, we I'm sure, you know, we've talked about Brexit and Trump a lot and and that's going to come up again. But uh, Turkey, you've been very quiet. What's your looking back? You know, it's the end of December now at 2016. Um, what do you remember? What teachings do you do you keep from uh, from those past 12 months? Ah, uh, 2016. I really have nothing to say of 2016 <laughs> other than <laughs> F you 2016. This has been a horrible year. That's it. That's it. It's 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 a crazy year. It's. Uh, for us in Saudi, it's, a, it's been a major year for us and uh, the economy, the changes that's going on. We uh, uh, see the new budget now, the, the, the increases in gas, the increases in electricity. Our, our standards of life is changing drastically in 2016 here in Saudi. Internationally, Trump is now president-elect and soon the president of the United States of America. God knows what disasters he could do to the Middle East. Uh, his policies uh, regarding the Middle East are really worrying a lot of people. His reactions regarding uh, relationship with Israel, his re- relationship with Iran, with uh, Saudi. It's, we really don't know what's going to happen. It's uh, For us, uh, 2016 has just started a fire. And God knows how bad it could get. Mm, that's, I guess, a, a good way of putting it. Um, Eric, do you have any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, a couple things stand out. I think this will be the year where Syria will be remembered as, you know, the failing, the moral failing of the international community. Maybe it's because the international community doesn't really exist anymore. You know, that we just don't feel, you know, the BS that we heard in Europe after World War II, and I'm the son of, 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 of refugees, Jewish-German refugees, who said never again. Um, that was a lie. It was a lie when we saw the suffering in Bosnia, and it's a lie when we see what's happening in Syria. And the rise of, you know, of, of ISIS this past year really indicates that we're not only dealing with states anymore. We're dealing with, you know, populism, non-state actors, states, and in many ways, the power of the state is diminishing. 
And I think this is kind of hard for French people to understand as well, because there's so much faith in the state in France. But we're talking about forces now that are empowered by globalization, by automation, by technology, that are able to leverage the same tools that allow Twitter and Facebook and Google to profit, but also at the same time for things like ISIS to metastasize. So um, I think 2016 for me will be a rise of populism, the failing of our moral failing over Syria, and you know the sparking of a, a U.S.-China kind of trade, or not trade, but just a tension that we don't know where this will go. Whatever relationship that the United States has with any other country in the world is insignificant when you compare it to the Chinese. These are the two most important countries in the world on environment, on trade, on military, at the UN Security Council, on everything. And I'm there's surprised two you're strong not, leaders now. I'm surprised you're not talking about Russia at all. Um, I think Russia is a regional power. I think you guys in Europe focus on Russia much more because it's in your backyard. Right. But when you compare Russia to China, there's no comparison. I mean, economically, militarily, there's no comparison. And, and I think um, there's a lot of know. that frustration in Russia who aspires to be, uh, you know, more like the United States and, and China. And there's a lot of popular sentiment that Russians feel like they should be at that same table, which they are for most but, things, but, you know, and... Um, no, they're not. There, there's no innovation well, coming out the of table, Russia. This is, the this sense... is a third world in, you know, this is a third world kleptocracy that exports oil. That's it. Right. There's, but you there's know, where the Chinese have a diversified there's economy. A, but there's a... You know, um, there's a Sure, there's, there's a, a, feeling, a nostalgia of count. the Russian Empire and the, the, that the might Soviet be, uh, We have to address the reality as it is. And the reality as it is is that Russia is a regional power at best. No, I agree. But um, what I'm know. saying is that they're aspiring to a lot more and they're maneuvering to bring back sure. some of that. And they're trying. And that's but what motivates they're them. They're faced with the same problems that, that, that the government in Saudi Arabia has faced, that their fate depends on the price of oil. Mm. And if oil's up, they're strong. If oil's down, they're weak. And we're flooded with oil. As soon as the North Dakotans in the United States start digging for shale again, the price of oil is going to crater. So, you know, so Russia and Saudi Arabia will, for I think, for the foreseeable future, have budget constraints that, you know, prevent them from ever growing again, at least in the next 10 yeah. years. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, China... Is huge. It's innovating. It's you know. It's obviously a military power now. To the likes that the Russians would be envious of. Um, so this is there's no comparison. And, uh, breaking up again. Sorry. You don't pay enough. Ah, sorry. <laughs> the next six months from January. Can you still hear me? Or yeah, is, it yeah. break, is it there? Go ahead. Okay. The next six months from January to July will be some of the most dangerous months in modern history. Because what you're seeing is you're going to see Xi Jinping in China and Trump both playing to nationalist instincts. They're both strongmen and both have to show their constituencies that they won't back down. And what we have to do is get through these six months without a fight. Mm. And that's going to be very, very scary for us. Um, well, I, I maybe I'm naive, but I'm hoping that we will um, i think hope is good yeah hope is good. i guess it's kind of a, a, a rare commodity these days um but the way i look at it you, you touched on it a little bit uh, oh by the way i was surprised you didn't mention russia eric i'm also surprised that uh, turkey you didn't mention syria and i don't know if that's something you can't really talk about uh because saudi arabia or yeah. no it's just uh 
doesn't what matter. What am I supposed to, to say? No, it matters. But no, I mean to the country, to not about... you specifically. I'm sure you do. No, care. It, it it matters to the country. We are anti regime. We are we support uh, uprising, and every every Saudi, almost the majority of Saudis, support the uprising. The entire thing that's happening in Aleppo is a complete disaster. People here actually have been crying about it, and uh, it's upsetting. But what what are we supposed to do? The governments of the world have failed us. What are we supposed to do? All we can do is just, I don't know, pray, donate, try to help. There's nothing else. The governments of this world have disappointed us, have failed Aleppo. They have failed the Syrian people. I really don't know what to say about it. It's, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm at last. At the last, we discuss it here in Saudi, and this is my, and this is my reaction every time mm. I say. Seriously, what am I supposed to do about it? There's nothing we can do. Our governments and this entire, the entire governments of this world have failed this country. Yeah, it's it's we kind of no the, power. it echoes the sentiment we have here a little bit. I mean, Aleppo has been in, in the news very much in the past few weeks and months. And it feels like, you know, it's a rock and a hard place. You can't go to war with you know, as quote unquote insignificant as it is, uh, according to Eric, uh, you can't go to war with Russia, which is essentially what would happen. And you can't well, go insignificant globally, in... but not for the Europeans, of course, of course, I mean, because Russia is being right there in the neighborhood. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, including in the in the Middle East and the support of the Assad regime has been clear. And but the thing is, what do you do? Do you send troops? Do you what do you do? And and what when you were saying the uh, uh, bullshit post Second World War bullshit of never again? It's not just Aleppo itself, which you know I understand. Maybe what can we do? We can donate a little bit of money. We can pray, as you said, Turkey. Um, but I understand that we're not going to actually send troops into Syria and create what is essentially a. a, a maybe not global, but at least continent-wide conflict, because that is what it would provoke, or proxy conflict. It, it, I don't think it would do anyone any good. Uh, but the the complete failing is in the handling of the refugee crisis, and that is, both are shameful, but the refugee crisis is immensely, you know, it's chilling. Like, there there are countries which are now sending people back to the region saying, yeah, you're fine. The the country is now, okay, you can go back, not maybe specifically to Aleppo, but, and the, the, the lack of empathy has been, uh, uh, I, I want to say troubling, but the reality is, and it is going to, I agree with you, Eric, it's going to be looked back at as a, an a, a incredible, moral failing for the West. And I include myself in it. You know, I'm not looking at everyone else. It's us as a, a, a country, a continent, a, a culture. And it makes everyone kind of look at what we've achieved as a civilization and think, well, maybe we weren't as far along as we thought. And the the other thing I want to mention about 2016, because it's obvious now, is the relation to truth and facts. And we were talking about it in our Brexit episode. I can't remember when it was, June or July, maybe. And we were saying back then, it was, you know, six months ago, it wasn't so, so uh, uh, in vogue at the time. But it was basically, we, we said, I think ver verbatim, facts don't matter. And it's terrifying. Um, the The... 
the arguments in the uh, Brexit campaign, we we mentioned that very famous quote of a um, someone in the Brexit camp that was saying on TV, you know, people have had enough of experts, which is to say people have are tired of those who know what they're talking about. And it's sort of information overload. It's not. And at the time, it seemed like this weird anomaly but i think we're understanding now that we we do have information overload and we're realizing that information and really information technology and the internet have it's a tool and it's not just bringing good things it's also bringing negative things in that you can use them to to drown you know you can use them for good or ill and it's sort of obvious when you look at it in you know hindsight 2020 all of that but it it really felt for a decade or two here like the internet was only going to bring good things and yes there was harassment and bullying and all of this but that's not the real societal uh bombshell that was dropped on us this year the real one was the fact that you can make facts not matter because you you say so many things and so many untrue things that people don't know what's right anymore and uh and you know i i'm also a victim of that and a participant in this i remember there was a couple of uh videos that i shared on i reshared on twitter um this week one of them was a video of a someone that has been thrown off a plane uh, for speaking Arabic. I, I'm sure you've seen it. It's been everywhere. And mm-hmm. it's the video of a prankster uh, who we we think it's not a, pr- a prank in this case. We think it's somewhat legitimate. Uh, but initially there was doubt because he's a YouTuber and he makes, you know, super lol videos. But it it doesn't even really matter because that puts in question other cases that were real. That happened, you know, there was a Southwest case, there was a bunch of cases where someone was speaking Arabic, some people were uncomfortable around it and told the staff on the plane, and of course, you know, what's the plane attendant going to do? They're, I think they shouldn't, but uh, they asked the person to leave the plane. And that's, you know, because they're speaking Arabic. That is, again, we're getting back to the post-World War II never again thing. It's so angering it's it's but the the to get back to the point it doesn't it means that we don't know what's real again there was a um, a video which ended up being a parody of a girl walking in new york and getting harassed and having super hilarious retorts uh it was a two or three minutes video i shared it because i thought it was appalling because of the way she was being harassed and uh funny because she had like super she i thought she must have been a comedian or something because she was coming back with these really funny comebacks turned out it wasn't indicated as such in the video itself but it's a parody of the the famous video we've seen in the in the past and i'm like well if you don't indicate it in the thing what all you're doing is yes you're making a funny video that's going to be shared but you're also making us lose stock in the real ones, and we 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 get so much of it that we don't know which which are real and which ones we should be outraged about, and that leads, you know, and it's also uh, part of the Trump strategy, I think, which is you just say stuff. Doesn't matter if it's true yeah, or but, not. But, but, but I think it's a, it's a little bit of a cop out on your part, with all due respect, 
mm-hmm. to keep identifying things that are happening in the United States and saying you're outraged, and then you post on Facebook how outraged you are. That's what Evgeny Morozov, the Harvard scholar, the once Harvard scholar, you know, he talked about slacktivism, where people are like, I'm so angry, like this. <laughs> you know, whereas in your country, just like in my country, we're seeing this happen, French armed French police are going to the beach and telling women who are wearing burkinis that they have to get out. And my question is, what did you do? Did you write to that southern French mayor who ordered the police to the beaches to, to, to remove those women wearing burkinis? Probably not. Did you exercise any of your constitutional rights to be able to bring mercy down upon that mayor to say what you did was wrong? No. You maybe posted a Facebook video saying how outraged you are. And my point is that we are all complicit in this by doing that. By thinking that posting on Facebook is somehow taking action when, in fact, it's doing absolutely nothing. Well, so, so to kind of point to other places in the world and saying how bad it is when in your own community. You're breaking up. Sorry, Eric. We, we really can't yet we all understand don't do what anything you're saying. About it. So I, <sighs> no, <laughs> I get I get what you're what you say. I would dispute the, the fact that posting on tw- Facebook or Twitter does nothing. I think it's it's not nothing. It's not enough or even you know uh uh, it's definitely not enough but i don't think it does nothing however i mean i don't know my i take comfort in the fact that i'm doing this show uh i think that's sort of my contribution to world understanding um and i think but but i understand i agree that but we're preaching that's the problem though is that on facebook you're preaching to people who already believe you Well, and on this show, about, people like you already. And that's the problem with the silos that we live in today. You're talking about the media. bubbles and the silos. I agree. Uh, to an extent, I, I think it's been over-exaggerated over a little bit. I think on this show specific, and this is not about this show, but I think on this show we, we work really hard to try and, and talk to people who we might disagree with. Uh, and so that's sort of my effort. But I take your point, and, and sure. I do agree. Um, maybe we're not doing enough. But the problem is, you know, when you have so many people telling you politics, politicians are corrupt, everything is messed up, everything is effed up. And I do think that to to an extent, uh, some of the political spectrum does that more than the others. A lot of the extremes do that more and say, well, the system is 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 fucked up. Nothing works, so it doesn't matter anymore. And I think that is the most dangerous thing. I think the system is complicated, and the system it might be you know too convoluted at this point. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Uh, it, I think it, it the the important thing to remember in all of this is that the system is complex and is uh, uh, diff- unwieldy. Partly for reason, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It's it's sort of the the confusion added with all of this. You know, there's so much information about everything. We don't understand anything, so let's throw it all in the air, and we don't care. And that's not a song, although it could be. Um, is kind of is kind of super counterproductive, and that is what is dangerous. We've forgotten why democracy is important, even though it's unwieldy and complicated. And that's why I get so angry at people who, uh, you know, say, oh, but, you know, all politicians lie, so let's not even care about any of it. And let's, you know, it 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 is important, and we're seeing more and more why it is important. And I don't know. 
It, I, I kind of throw my it's hands not up working. You, 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 you're saying that democracy and the system can work. And what I'm saying is that it's not working for enough people to make it so that it's dysfunctional to the point of potentially irreparable. And this idea that in Europe and the United States that democracy is the only system in the world when, in, you know, I live in a country and I'm not saying that an undemocratic society is the ideal, but a lot of people here in Vietnam, they don't aspire for democracy. If you ask nine out of 10 people on the street, would you like to have democracy? They'll say, no. And you say, what would you want? They want Singapore. They want schools to work. They want streets that are clean. They want no corruption in the police. They want a bureaucracy that actually responds. Singapore is not a democratic country, despite what it says. And so this idea that democracy is the paramount system, I think, is not reading what a lot of people around the world want, which is a functioning system as opposed to a democratic you system. You don't think the, French, the French system func functions, though? I am. You're talking to the wrong person, because I think the French <laughs> system is really one of the most dysfunctional, most, you know, just unbearably complicated system. And I think right now, when you look at 25 percent youth unemployment, that system is not working. When you look at so many parts of French society that are that are, are just broken down, when you look at the fact that, you know, you know, we can go on for a long time, my criticisms of France. No, I don't think France is a system that's working right now. And that's right. why I think Marine Le Pen has a very good chance on the uh, to win next year. Well, so let's make this into a, a, a little game. Um, if Marie, Marine Le Pen wins, then you're right on everything. And if she doesn't, then you're wrong on everything. And French, <laughs> France is perfect. We'll, we'll do a little bit of a wager. Dinner in Paris will be on whoever, whatever direction the French election All goes. right, cool. That, that works for me. Um, okay, I think that is going to do it for us. Um, it was definitely a little bit more... I, I, You know, I think I, I reflect the feeling of everyone uh, in the end, in the audience, and possibly in the Western world, which is we hope, we wish we could have a little bit more hope. But in the end, 2016, in many ways, is kind of a year we'd all rather forget. I think we have to remember the teachings of it, and some of them we, we talked about it here. Um, but the important thing is to look forward to 2017 now, and let's try to not mess things up more. Um, so yeah, I will be here, uh, all the way, hopefully, um, we'll be, we'll be with you and we'll talk about it and comment and hopefully try to bring a little bit more understanding as we always do. Um, I do want to read an iTunes com comment, uh, and thank the listener who posted it. Tainted shirt from Ireland. I'm not sure why your shirt is tainted, but, uh, thank you for your five stars and for your comment. You, you're saying, uh, it's essential and your comment is quite long. I'm just going to read this part. This podcast is becoming more and more important as the world seems to be slipping to the right. Uh, the best way to defy this slide is by interacting with people of different cultures and gaining insight into their points of view. Easily the single best podcast out there. Thank you very much. Uh, and as always, this sort of exemplifies my 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 goal uh, with this show of trying to get people to understand other points of view, whether it's to the right or to the left. You know, we did do a, a few shows with people that you might not have encountered on the left side of the political spectrum. Hopefully we'll have more. Um, 
And on that note, I want to add uh, a, a, another thank you to the Patreon supporters, uh, the Patreon supporters, I mean, uh, patreon.com slash the Phileas Club. We are uh, over 600 bucks now. I can't believe the support we've we've been getting. Uh, it's It's been uh, growing quite a bit in the past couple of uh, couple of weeks. I, I guess I should thank uh, President Trump for that to an extent. <laughs> um, but we'll keep doing what we're doing. We also have a, a number of uh, specials coming in the uh, in the beginning of 2017 as you know the the 500 bucks milestone was more specials so we'll have one uh, a quarter at least uh, we'll bring you some interesting points of view as well at that point if you want to support the show if you think there was one thing to save in 2016 and that was this show that might be a little bit ambitious of me to to propose that idea but uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the club we do appreciate your support every buck counts and uh, it does mean a huge amount to me so thank you thank you very much for that uh, thank you to the co-hosts uh, thanks eric from vietnam thanks uh Turkey thank you from uh, from Saudi Arabia where can people oh, find your your work um and your your podcaster yourself Eric so they might be interested I am so I, I guess if people like your show on global affairs they will really hopefully like mine as well uh I host the China in Africa podcast so if you're interested in China's foreign relations we just did a show on China in the Middle East as well uh so look us up on iTunes uh, we, we broadcast every every week. Uh, also, you can find me on LinkedIn. I've got uh, over 130,000 followers on LinkedIn. So look for Eric Olander there. And of course, at the ChinaAfricaProject.com, you can find all of our work. Thanks very much for being on. Uh, Turkey on Twitter, as always. Yep. So you can find me on Twitter at Turkey Albella. And uh, I just sometimes I put some post up there and just ramble around. <laughs> that is the kind of uh, enthusiasm we got used from uh, from you. <laughs> like, yeah, I did, did. Come on, the timing was just perfect. The budget was just announced yesterday, so <laughs> not exactly in the greatest of moods. It is. Uh, you know what? Well, I was going to say it's Christmas, but you really don't care, do you? No, we don't celebrate Christmas here, so uh, it doesn't obviously. really matter. Yeah. Although I love the decorations when we were in London for my birthday. That that was nice. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? Uh, Merry Christmas to all of those who celebrate it. A happy new year to all of those who uh, work on that system. And just general merriment to everyone else. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Again, thanks to Eric and Turkey for being here for the last show of the year. Uh, and we will be back uh, in 2017, hopefully with better news. Hopefully. We'll see what happens, but we'll be here anyway. Thanks a lot and talk to you then. Bye.